ultra Tuscan orange grapefruit. My God, America is imploding. Not only is America imploding, but the Bercala household is as well. We got Russian spies living here. Uh, we have lawyers, and it's just it's it's a it's a nutty place to be right now. But welcome to another episode of Fan Zone Debate. Uh, this is the show where people come on and yell at each other about dumb shit that doesn't matter, and I love it. So uh, <laughs> we're here for another debate match, a contender match. Rue Moses going up against Cam Holtzman. Um, this is, I think, <laughs> in the pre-match going into this, Cameron basically did the Paul Rudd meme of the, look at us. Who would have thought? Not me. <laughs> he basically did that. Uh, which, I mean, say what you will, they both got here against a lot of other great competitors. So it's going to be nuts. I'm looking forward to it. Cody's here to judge this one with me. Cody, welcome to the show. And what do you think about Rue versus Cam? Well, I think it's really interesting because they didn't know, like, right before this, we changed this to all, like, actual political debates. So they're mm. going to be talking about the world's politics and who's going to run for 2024. That's going to be fun. Um, but, actually, I'm really excited for this because when uh, Rue won – listen, Bucky, I'm almost done. Listen, uh, when Rue won and we told him the two that he'd possibly be able to face, he said – I want Holtzman. Give me Holtzman was the exact words he said. I have watched him debate, and I know I can take it. So, money where your mouth is. Here's your moment. You're able to prove it. So, I'm excited to see that. I Maybe put a fire under Cam. Thinks he can beat him easily. Who knows? But I think whoever plays Kirk, this is going to be a, this gonna be a great championship match regardless because they're very different than Kirk. Absolutely. Uh, so, Brian is also here. Brian, welcome. What do you think about this matchup? Uh, you know, I think this is going to be fun. He was talking about whoever plays this is going to play against Kirk. Um, so on that note alone, I kind of want Cameron to make it just because he will drive Kirk nuts, and I will love every minute of that. On the other hand, you know, I've played a lot with uh, with Rue and stuff, and so I like him, so I kind of want him to win. Either way, <laughs> see how it goes. Uh, once again, I don't even know what the questions are, which is probably for the best because I can go in unbiased, and uh, we'll see what happens. Absolutely. So we'll start by talking to Rue. Rue, welcome. You wanted Holtzman. You got Holtzman. Yes. How do you feel about the match? I'm very excited about this. Uh, I did want Holtzman. I do believe I can beat him. Uh, but the man is good. Uh, and that's one reason I want to play him, because I want to play the best. Uh, I have seen him debate. And as I said before, I believe I believe I can beat the man, but I have to come with it because uh, he knows what he's doing. Uh, but I think I know a little bit better. So let's see. If I, I can, I can walk the walk. Uh, it's going to be a fun time doing it. All right. So uh, let's also bring in Cameron Holtzman. Cameron, welcome. Um, at the end of your match, you did not say I want Rue. I need Rue, but you did say, "Oh, I'm playing Rue. Let's do this." Uh, how do you feel about the matchup? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, Cody informed me that apparently I learned this not a minute ago. Apparently, Rue wanted to face me. Uh, he overestimated that I would watch all the way through the end of that match and see all the post-match interviews. Rude. Uh, so this is Rude. news to me. Uh, but no, uh, I'm excited. I think this is going to be fun. Uh, I think we got some interesting questions. Uh, I'm the crazy person who like actually prints out notes here. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Um, 
if if nothing else, I will either make my high school, my junior high debate teacher who I haven't spoken to in seven years proud of me, or I will disappoint him and he will never know which one it is. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's get into it. This is how it's going to work. Uh, we have questions uh, based off of categories that the players drafted. Um, we gave them the questions, and they gave us some answers. They're going to debate them before our very souls this evening. So uh, each of them will get a one-minute opening for each question, followed by a five-minute freeform where they will debate each other, followed by a one-minute closing for each player. At the end of the question, Cody, Brian, and I will write on our handy-dandy boards who we think won the point. Best two out of three votes will win the point, and the first person to three points is the winner. If we are tied after the four uh, questions, the prep questions, we will move to a bonus speed round question. So we will explain the rules for that should we get there. So, uh, gentlemen, any questions as we get into the match? Nope. No. All right. Well, then let's do this thing. All righty, gentlemen, we are going to get kicked off with the first category, which was drafted by Mr. Holtzman. It is in the category of directors. And the question is, what film franchise should Edgar Wright direct the next installment of? So, Cam, you drafted this. You get to go first on the question. You have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. So many people would agree that Edgar Wright is at his best when he is playing on the stereotypes and cliches of other genres like he does in the Cornetto trilogy, but elevating to something above what they originally could be. And I think no franchise will give him the opportunity to explore things like that in a way that he hasn't yet than the Kingsman series. Kingsman gives him the perfect opportunity to do that with the spy genre, a genre that he has gone on record of loving and a genre we really haven't seen him tackle yet. Uh, he can take his love for the genre, he can take his love for even the Bond franchise, and he can turn it into a modern self-referential referential love letter for both the Bond films of old and the new Bond films without without compromising the Bond franchise's tone and style, if you were to go with there. Uh, the Kingsman franchise, especially the first film, is one that has a track record of great long-take action scenes, great cinematography, great editing, great comedy, uh, and great soundtracks. These are all things that Edgar Wright is incredibly strong in. He crafts them in all of his films, and he makes them work really, really well. His skills are perfect for the low-brow British comedic sensibilities of the Kingsman franchise, especially when that franchise is currently on a downward trajectory. He can bring it back to the greatness that it once was. Time. All right, uh, we'll move over to Rue. Rue, you have one minute when you start talking. The perfect franchise for Wright to take over the next installment of is a mutually beneficial thing for him and the franchise, and that is the Bond franchise. It needs a new direction post-Craig. They can't do Craig again. They can't go back to Brosnan or any of the other five, six other guys they've done before, and he can, can create a right new tone that would completely reinvigorate the franchise. On top of that, he also loves Bond, so much so that he already has a pitch that he wants to give to the Eon folks. He has a love for old-school Bond, as you saw in last night in Soho, so he'll be able to keep OG fans happy 
happy. He can bring in new audiences with that new style uh, for a new action that he you see in movies like Baby Driver and the Cornetto Trilogy. And his work in general has so many connections to Bond that he can bring a balance of all the things that Bond, uh, all the details that Bond lovers love and that new tone. You see it, uh, it Hot Fuzz shows his capabilities with villains and henchmen. He'd worked with the five-time Bond composer and David Arnold. He could stick to source material while keeping his stamp on uh, um, of himself like he did in Scott Pilgrim. It's Bond. Time. All right. James Bond versus The Kingsman. Five-minute freeform when one of you starts talking. Please don't talk over each other or I will be sad. So I think the biggest problem with Edgar Wright taking over the Bond franchise is frankly the statement that it needs a new direction I think is incorrect. Of the Craig-era Bond films, three of them, Casino Royale, Skyfall, and No Time to Die, are widely considered to be three of, if not the three best Bond films. And the thing they have in common is they are dark, they are serious, and they are all over two and a half hours long. Edgar Wright does not specialize in the dark in the series. He specializes in making 110-minute popcorn action comedies that like can be fun and enjoyed, but you don't need the depth that the for that that story will bring if we want to keep bond and keep the audience we currently have we shouldn't be taking it in a new direction we should be giving them what they love See, the problem with your statement is if you want to keep Bond where it's at, it's going to be consistent. And it's going to be consistent that every other movie is trash. So you want to keep that? You want to keep the same old fans? Go ahead and do that. But the thing is, the, Edgar Wright is such a Bond nuts. He, know, a nuts. he knows the intimate details that he can keep those OG fans happy. You see what he does with female characters last night in Soho and a kind of somewhat dark tone. Imagine him and Anna de Armas together in the next film. He's worked with the essentials of Bond before. Dalton, Diana Rigg, Daniel Craig, Pierce Brosnan, Rosamund Pike, Margaret Nolan. He knows what those OG fans want and can bring something new that will bring new fans together. You want to do Kingsman? Kingsman's direction is already his direction. It won't change the franchise. Only making it better, but making no different. Bond will become better and become different. See, but the thing is, I don't think we need to do something different with Kingsman. People love the original, and while it keeps and it keeps trying to change things up, adding new elements, going to the past, and it's soundly rejected by its audience. We want to bring it back to form, bring it back to what pe made people love it. And what made people love it was the original style, which I think Edgar Wright can replicate really well. As well, you say his love for the OG Bond and his work with female characters in last night so in, that we saw in Last Night in Soho will bring people back in. But the fact of the matter is, many fans of Edgar Wright and general movie-going audiences. Uh, overall soundly rejected last night in Soho. They thought it was messy. They thought it was clunky. They thought he did not develop the characters well. They thought he did not have a sense of how to grapple with the time. He even had issues with a ongoing Bond issue, which is grappling with the themes of sexism, feminism, and men being like creepy towards women. And that is a thing that plagues the Bond franchise forever. And he proved that he cannot handle that territory and he cannot go above it. And when that's the, one of the biggest problems that people complain about, if he can't move on from that, what are we going to do? So you, that people say that the movie was messy, but that's about the timeline and, and weird sci-fi stuff that goes in the last night in Soho. You saw that he can direct women very, very well in terms of Mackenzie's performance and in Anya Taylor-Joy's performance. And he's shown in other movies that he can definitely easily make sure that women are top-notch in their films. You look at uh, what Rosamund Pike does in At World's End. You say that Kingsman doesn't need to be different? Then keep Matthew Vaughn as the director. He That is his baby. He knows it up and down. And, and him and Wright are so similar that if you brought 
right into direct, it won't really do anything to make the franchise better. If you want to have right pen the script and keep Vaughn as the director, sure. But making him the director won't really make it any different. Bond in general, as I said, he is the nut. He knows the intimate details. He can have people help him with that direction of any sexism or, uh, or, or, mas or uh, misogyny that you want. But however, that's still in there. So somebody can direct him the, the other way to help him learn that balance, maybe bring in a co-writer co for him to help with that. But when it comes to Kingsman, everything is so similar. Nothing will be different, and it won't help the franchise at all. See, but the thing is, you keep saying Edgar Wright has this love for Bond, and I agree, he has this love for Bond. But the problem is, I don't think Edgar Wright's sensibilities, Edgar Wright's abilities, and Edgar Wright's direction and his talent and his writing can be used well within the spectrum of Bond. He cannot One do highbrow British. He specializes in lowbrow in the streets. That's what the world's end is. That's what Hot Fuzz is. It's showing the lower people, the lower middle class, the dirtier side of the story. He cannot handle the highbrow British sensibilities. So by bringing him in on that, it just doesn't work. But he can take that love for that tie his own sensibilities into it with the Kingsman franchise and move forwards. You keep saying that's Matthew Vaughn's baby, but the, the fact of the matter is in the last two movies, Matthew Vaughn has been consistently dropping these films, lowering their quality because he's trying to do something different. And even you say he's keeping it the same. That flat out is not the case as well. Uh, going on with Edgar Wright, we have learned with Edgar Wright's failure on Ant-Man, he cannot work with big studios. He cannot work with big franchises because he needs to be given full creative control and full ability to take control of the stories and the films that he's directing. With Bond, especially coming off of No Time to Die and the big stakes, he cannot get away with doing whatever he wants and what and without the studio's interference. But with Kingsman, he has the freedom and ability to do what he wants, how he wants, and make it incredible. Time. Okay. Uh, Rue, you get to close first. You have one minute when you start talking. If you look at scenes like No Man's Land in The King's Man, you know that Matthew Vaughn has a, the right hold on The King's Man. And if you could change to write, it's not going to change it any different. It's the writing that sucks, not the direction. So Edgar Wright going to The Kingsman isn't going to do anything for the franchise, but make it the same for the same type of fans. Bond, Bond needs to get dirty. Bond needs to get lowbrow. And that knowledge that he has, the people he's worked with, who's worked throughout that franchise, can shows that he can actually work with those type of people and those type of essential people within the franchise want to do something different. He can change his sensibilities in terms of compromising to go into Bond, and, and the Bond franchise can change their sensibilities to get new, new audiences in and old audiences well. Kingswin won't change at all with Edgar Wright and because it won't change why would he do that he will benefit from going to Bond because he loves the franchise and Bond will benefit from him because it's like nothing they've ever seen before with action or direction Time. all right uh, move over to Cam for his closing one minute when you start talking at the end of the day, what you are asking Edgar Wright to do with your pitch for Bond is you're asking him to change himself. You said he can change his sensibilities. He can go against things. And you also said he needs other people to do the things for him. He needs other people to handle the story. He needs other people to handle the women. He needs other people to handle whatever your idea is. Edgar Wright solely on his own can handle the Kingsman franchise. He can write a story that will work with it. He can direct the action. He can craft a brilliant soundtrack. He can make these great long take action scenes that made us love the film. He is Matthew Vaughn to the nth degree. He can increase everything and elevate it to a new level while still bringing 
bringing it to new places and moving it forwards. The problem with the Bond films is, as we've seen with the critical like reception of the most recent ones, what people want is these long action epics. They want these. Edgar Wright can't do that. The only movie he's directed that's over two hours is Last Night in Soho, and he was not able to hold the dramatic tension for that time. As well, changing his sensibilities into the highbrow British instead of the lowbrow British is what ruined Last Night in Soho. He wasn't able to handle it. He wasn't able to handle the tone, the stakes, the anything, and it just did not work. Kingsman is the right choice for him, period. Time. Okay. Um couple things that I want to throw out there um, before we get started. Uh, Cody, Brian, um, how much do you think it hurt Cameron to shit talk last night in Soho? <laughs> I just want to know if that's canon. If that's canon and actual belief, then that wait, hold It's not. Me. I think he gave it a five star. On I think it's bullshit. I did not. I will tell you I did not give it a five star, and I think Ooh. it's Edgar Wright's second worst film. You okay. gave it a four and a half, didn't you? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> hey, time's over, and that can't factor in. That no, it doesn't. It doesn't factor in. I, I already have my answer. Rue, if Rue didn't say record. it, it doesn't count. Um, okay. Um, I thought this was really good to get started. This was intense. Um, ultimately, well, I think the the biggest thing against Cam was I think he struggled during the freeform to combat Rue's thing of, like, how is it going to change? Like, how is Kingsman going to change? And I thought Rue's closing was really strong as well. But at the same time, Cameron's, like, attack on Bond, I thought was really strong. And I thought Cam's closing was incredible, in my opinion. I went with Ronnie personally uh cameron i was uh, so freaking confused who cam, that was. Cam, cameron ronnie is who i'm going with uh, cameron cameron oh my god what a disaster uh, so i remember cameron i thought that his attacks on bond and everything were just so spot on um and his attacks to say that like everything that like basically taking Rue's own words and turning them against him. Like you, you're just saying that Edgar Wright's going to like have other people do things. I thought was a really smart uh, tactic. So I went with cam uh, Cody. There's a trend on this show. Most people pick up on it. If you watch every show, it's the first question me and Tim disagree. Probably want 10 out of 10 times. Well, tomorrow my problem was, I think the best, best opening and closing was camp. But I think that's because you were had planned out to an extent. I think overall, Rue was able to throw a uh, the correct argument, and I think he gave a lot about Bond, and you tackled Bond a lot. But he throws he he raised a lot of questions in the middle of why change it if it's if it's going to be the exact same as Bond, and they're pretty similar, which he said, which you gave some points that he's not similar to but just not enough for my take that I think overall Rue was able to attack it and say Kingsman. And he kept saying the writing directing, that's the separation right there. And then that's where the disconnect happened. I think overall, and I think that's why Rue took it for me, but it, I think if you would have said some of the stuff you said in your closing in your middle, it would have had a lot more weight for me. All right, Brian, you get to decide this one. Uh, you know, I thought Rue was doing a really good job of, of kind of talking about how uh, his pick was beneficial for both him and the franchise, and mutually beneficial, because, you know, they both get to change up things a little bit, show a different side of themselves. Uh, Cameron was doing a real good job uh, fighting back, though, on his end, although I, I ended up voting for Rue. Um, and I think the deciding factor for me was actually two things where I think Cameron shot himself in the foot. 
one was saying that Edgar Wright can't do over two hour, you know, these action films, all three Kingsman movies, well over two hours. Uh, and then he also said Edgar Wright can't work within studio system on franchises like you did with Ant-Man. Kingsman Allen by Fox. So it'd still be with Disney. Just saying. All right. Uh, <laughs> say, neither of those were said by my opponent. You can still uh, fact check. Fact check is allowed. You just say a bunch of BS. It doesn't doesn't stand if the movie uh, is over two hours. Well, there goes All right. Strategy. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, Rue wins the first point. We are going to move on to the second question, which is in the category of the Wizarding World. This was chosen by Rue. The question is: Which Wizarding World movie has the best opening sequence? Uh, so we're going to start with Rue on this one. He has one minute to open his argument when he starts talking. In Inception, Dom Cobb says positive emotion trumps negative emotion every time and nothing gives you more positive, gives you this more childlike wonder and delivers on the most important four minutes of the entirety of the Wizarding World franchise, like the brilliance and beauty of the opening sequence of Sorcerer's Stone that gets Harry Potter exactly fucking right. Utilizing three brilliant actors who, from their first word, deliver three wildly important characters using effects and sound to capture the magic of the world when words aren't needed. And the MVP starting with probably the most iconic piece of music in film history as it quietly dings into Williams' whooshing violins, hitting every right note, making note, making you smile with so much glee, ending with Dumbledore putting the letter down, ding, 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 and saying good luck. Uh, Harry Potter and John Williams' score booms in with the da-da-da-da-da-da zooms in into the, the, the lightning scar, flashes with thunder in the background, title car comes up, and you want to just scream at how absolutely perfect every single second is of the opening of Sorcerer's Stones. Time. All right. Uh, we'll move over to Cameron. Cameron, one minute when you start talking. So the purpose of the opening scene of a film is to establish the film that you are about to watch, to establish where we are going, where we are moving forwards to. And I think no film in the Wizarding World does that better than Deathly Hallows Part 1. The opening scene immediately gets straight to the point, playing off the film that we just saw. It immediately establishes the tone and stakes of the film that you're about to see and the threat level that our heroes are facing moving forwards. It introduces Rufus Scrimger, a character who, while not major, becomes very important to that film specifically. And uh, the scene does a great job of not just reminding us where these characters are coming from, but where they are going. We see these characters in their homes. We see the things that they have to give up the emotional weight and power that they have to channel themselves. Hermione has to erase herself from her family's memory. And it's one of the most emotionally powerful moments in the entire franchise. Uh, the, the scene is filmed absolutely beautifully with the cinematography of that film truly lending itself, whether it be the close-ups on Scrimger's face at the, at the beginning, which gives you the severity of the opening lines. The shots of the media and the newspaper establishing that the entire world is learning about uh, Dumbledore's death and everything coming back. Uh, the shots of the Burrow and Privet Drive giving us our last glances at these places while they're still normal Time. before they get destroyed. All right. So, Deathly Alice Part 1, as the English would say, the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, gentlemen, five-minute freeform when one of you starts talking. Without a word, Richard Harris comes in carrying the absolute magnificence of Dumbledore, introducing the sternness of Maggie Smith McGonagall by knowing that she would be there. And Robbie Coltrane's first rugged world, uh, warm, gravelly voice just makes you scream like it's a hug at how perfect they're all getting. And that brilliance is simultaneously takes a backseat and is enhanced by every click of the Deluminator, the meow and transforming shadow of McGonagall, the rumble in the sky and skid of Sirius's bike as it hits the ground, as John Williams scores dings and whooshes and booms and hits at exactly the right time 
opening the establish, establishing the opening of the entire world while Deathly Hollows only hopes to live in the shadow of that. My scene is perfect and yours has flaws. See, but the thing is, I think it's so easy to say that something is the best simply because it is the first. It has the easiest job. It gets to introduce you to this world. And frankly, it does not do a good job of it. It is vague. It is unspecific. The characters say, this is a, it is a tragedy. It is so great. These characters do not show emotion in their face. They do not show sadness, despite the fact that once we get context later on, this is nearly immediately in the few hours after the murder of James and Lily Potter at the hands of Voldemort. There is no emotion from them. There is no tragedy. There is no sadness. There is simply, this is a matter of business. As well, the effects that you keep saying are fantastic do not hold up. The, the cutaway to the shadow transforming does not work, especially compared to other effects in the same film, which are fantastic. You say John Williams' score is fantastic, but it drowns out the dialogue and makes some of it hard to hear, whereas the Splat score is perfectly undertoning, perfectly setting the tone for that, uh, for the tone of the film moving forwards. Not only did John Williams score is the most iconic to hear, it was uh, nominated for a best Oscar. You said there's no emotion. Hagrid does the one tear as he, Harry Potter is being placed down. The emotion you hit from every single second is absolutely amazing. The, you're saying it's easy just because it's the first. It is the most important because it has to establish the world and it does it in every single second. You could say it's vague. You could say there's no emotion, but you got three of the best British actors delivering on things that everybody wants to see. Are they going to deliver are they deliver and they absolutely deliver with every line the meow and the transformation shows you oh that is the magic of the world the 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 lights of the deluminator and the sounds you hear are so crisp everything about it is perfect yours yours does pretty well however it it it, it, it does a great slow roll opening with bill nighy but then it loses steam because the pacing kind of just quickens up and shows the flaws for not sticking with the trio longer. That CGI with the new paper is really bad and it takes you out for a second. And then going to Harry really quickly with the apparent very bad voiceover from Harry Melling as Dudley takes you out again. And it's, it's small things, but when you're going up against perfection, those small things become big. I'm sorry, but it's so easy to throw out the word perfection and then not back it up. You have poor lighting, you have poor sound, you have score overdoing the things. You keep saying, I have you have three of the greatest British actors of all time. I have Bill Nye, I have Emma Watson, I have Julie Walters. I have great actors too, and I can say that. The thing is, your three actors, two of them are barely acting. They are walking. They are having a basic conversation with no emotion, with no stakes, with no tension. And those stakes exist. They are from books that have been written. We know what the stakes are. We know the things coming into the scene, and they don't play them. They fail to play off of them. They, they instead give us these moments of just failing to build this world, failing to give us the characters that we need. We don't learn who these characters are. We see these characters walk in a world. We don't learn some of their names even. It fails to introduce you to the world, which is exactly what it's supposed to do, and it doesn't do a good job of it, having to let the rest of the film do so much heavy lifting and leaving you just as in the dark as it possibly could. De Deathly Hallows Part 1, it gives you those moments. It plays exactly off of where the last film ends. It moves forwards. It brings us into the movie. Uh, it has to cover a lot in a short amount of time, and it does it brilliantly. It covers the emotion. It covers the pain. One minute. It covers the difficulties that these characters are going through and shows us everything they have to leave behind, all of the things that they are going to lose by going on this journey, but shows us that they know it's the hard thing to do, but that it's the right thing to do in a beautifully effective way. 
your great actors aren't there for more than two seconds at a time. My actors don't need to speak to show their gravitas and show how much they actually uh, are are exactly who those characters are. The 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 meow and the transformation, the sound puts you into uh, the magic is that world. Dumbledore doesn't need to speak because the second he pulls out the deluminator and you hear every click and you hear the whoosh of the light, and whoosh of like you're like, oh my god, this is magic. Oh, who is this guy who doesn't need to speak to create this? Who is this guy who comes in so clumsily, but you can tell that he's warm because he's crying and he's cradling a baby? Who is this professor who is so stern and so quick to come in and, and, and question what's going on? You know McGonagall is stern because she has all the questions. You know Hagrid is warm because he carries the baby. You know Dumbledore is magic because Time. he doesn't need to speak. Doesn't need to speak. Strike it from the record. Um, Cam. You get to close first on this one. You have one minute when you start talking. Again, the purpose of an opening scene is to show us where our characters are going in and where they are going to move forwards. And Sorcerer's Stone fails to do that at every step of the way. It does not give us the context. It does not give us the stakes. It does not give us what's going to happen moving forwards just with single throwaway lines and vague conversation that fails to inter introduce things. It doesn't give us much insight into any of the characters except for maybe Hagrid with the single tear. It even fails to name some of them. So the audience is left sitting with no idea what they are watching, why they should care about the characters or the events, and what even is happening. The scene in Deathly Hallows Part 1 is full of emotion. It is full of power. It is full of beautiful cinematography. The moment of Hermione erasing herself from her family's memory is one of the most powerful and beautifully acted scenes in the performance with Watson's single breaths and inability to speak in those moments. Clear and deliberate and incredible to see. The scene does a great job of reminding us the stakes. It builds it. It films it properly. The score elevates it. It shows us all we need to see. It gets us moving. It gets us going. It doesn't waste any time. It doesn't waste any words. It doesn't waste any any of its few moments and just is all what it needs to be time okay we're gonna move over to rue for his closing you have one minute when you start talking Dumbledore's first words are, I should have known you would be here, Professor McGonagall. She responds by asking Dumbledore by name whether or not Hagrid is the one to bring, asking, uh, making you think, why is the person the wrong person to bring him in? They are so good at what they do. They don't, uh, Richard Harris barely needs words to bring it in there. Um, you know McGonagall's sternness by the fact that she's questioning everything. You know Hagrid's warmth by how he handles Harry after skidding to the ground. But in on top of all that, Cam says the purpose of uh, opening sequences to establish the movie well the sorcerer stone establishes the world the wizarding world not just the moment it establishes the magic which all the other movies preside sorcerer stone with its sound with its music with its acting with its not talking with its dialogue with everything including the most iconic piece of score in music history created the magic that allows deathly hollows to be believable and those flaws in deathly hollows bad cgi bad voiceover takes you out long enough that those small flaws um, allows Deathly Hallows just to live in the world of Sorcerer's Time. Stone perfection. All right. Oh, boy. We ready, judges? Yes, maybe. Brian, you get to go first. Proud of you. Um, tough. I, I actually disagree with most of their criticisms of them, but you know, it's not my opinion, it's it's what they're arguing. Um, but so I think it came down to more of the positives of what they were talking about. It, um, 
I think they both did a pretty good job of pitching their own, although I, I feel like they, they didn't spend enough time defending against what the other people were saying about them. Uh, I think in the end it came down to me. You can kind of tell uh, uh, Rue has a serious passion for, <laughs> for this, and you can always tell when somebody's really passionate about something. But it was mostly his, his uh, the final statements of both of them that kind of decided it for me, where uh, Rue mentioned that uh, this didn't just establish the movie, it established the entire franchise in which the rest of them reside. So I said Rue. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Brian that the criticisms I thought kind of like canceled each other out. Like none of them really worked for me. And I kind of had to had to go off the positives as well. And un until we got towards the end and something was said that I was like, if this other person combats this, this is going to be huge for me. And it was when Cam said... Some of these people aren't even like said by name. They're not doing it like blah, 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 blah. And Rue comes in and I said in my head, now nah, three of those motherfuckers are named and they actually do this, this, and this. And Rue comes out of the gate and goes, um, hi, this actually does happen. Here's a quote from the movie and quoted it. And I thought just overall Rue's did that same point that Brian made. The we, we established the wizarding world. That's how successful this opening scene was. It actually did do what it was setting out to do. I went with Rue. Um, so ruins the point, Cody. Your vote doesn't count. Where would you have gone in life? Shocking. I disagree Ooh. with Cam. Oh, wow. So, my overall take was, um, Rue leaned a lot on like at the start of it, they changed the direction, but being first, setting up the world, the manager overall. Cam combated all those and also threw a lot of like facts in way. I agree there was passion on both sides, but I think that's what got in the way of picking the scene overall. I think the first scene was picked from the nostalgia and the love from this thing instead of maybe the correct choice because uh, especially there was parts of Cam's that the, the story was we've had years of this. Now the opening means more even though, and then the Hermione stuff, there was a lot to combat at that point. So I had to go with Cam, but I'm just, I'm, I'm wrong. So it's okay. <laughs> uh, to be fair, Cam's scene would have been my pick as well. So uh, I do think that scene is very personal. I but... Jack Pinchuk to guess what scenes were picked, and he guessed three before getting to either of our choices. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. All right. Well, it makes a lot uh, of sense about Jack. Well, that's, yeah. actually, that's fair. Uh, we're going to move on to the third question. Cameron does need to hit this in order to stay in. If uh, Rue can hit this one, it will be a knockout. So the question was drafted by Cameron. It is in the category of DreamWorks. The question is, who other than Jay Baruchel would you cast as Hiccup in a live action How to Train Your Dragon movie? Uh, so... We are going to start with Cameron. Cameron, you have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. So the thing about Hiccup and How to Train Your Dragon is that he has a few key characteristics that make it easy to relate to him and easy to know who he is. He is scrawny, he is nerdy, but he has a lot of heart. He has a lot of intelligence. He has these things that go against the people that are all around him because he clearly is not meant to fit into this situation until he becomes the unwitting leader and the unwitting hero that we have. My actor that I chose is an actor named Lewis Hines. Odds are you probably don't know who he is. Uh, he is best known for his role lead uh, as Klaus as the one of the leads in the Netflix show, A Series of Unfortunate Events. Uh, 
I think he is the perfect age to be headlining a live action How to Train Your Dragon franchise. Currently, he is quite young. He looks quite young, and he can encapsulate and he can encapsulate the role of the young Hiccup in a first How to Train Your Dragon. If these movies are to keep moving forward, he will be the right age as we get to the further films uh, moving on. Um, Heinz has proven through his role in a series of unfortunate events that he can lead a franchise that is primarily aimed towards children, but still keep it very interesting for adults with a great performance with great charisma. Uh, he is capable of playing the awkward young man that Hiccup has to be in the first film, but also capable of stepping up and being mature and taking charge like he needs to as well. He can navigate fantastic Time. situations. Situations. Strike it from the record. Uh, we will bring in Rue. Rue, you have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. <clears throat> Cam said it. Hiccup is a character that has always been about balancing a dichotomy between doubt and confidence. Uh, from his first words, you can feel his endearing awkwardness, his shyness about being different, his confidence in knowing he can be great and continued push against the world around him. But he's also worried about being the chief son, fights what he believes in, has consistent wonder of the dragon worlds. But mostly, he's very witty and sarcastic and has a dry sense of humor that encompasses and sometimes covers all of that. And the one person, if it isn't Jay Baruchel, who has lived the characteristics of Hiccup throughout his career, it's Justin Long. You look at Dodgeball and Galaxy Quest, and that wonder that he has in Galaxy Quest and awkward in both movies shows he can be believable in terms of being awkward. You see Accepted, and he's witty and sarcastic, has those comebacks against the bullies that set him up as the underdog. Live free or die hard. He continues that wittiness, going back and forth with a strong character like Bruce Willis. He's just not that into you. He grows up to now have flaws and strengths because he has grown from that awkwardness into confidence, honing that dry sense of humor that is essentially hit time. All right, guys, five minute freeform when one of you starts talking. So let's address the elephant in the room. Justin Long is currently 43 years old. He's far too old to play any version of Hiccup that we've seen in the franchise, except for maybe the old Hiccup at the very, very end of the final film. He is a terrible choice, to, and he is a terrible choice to play that older version of Hiccup. By the time he is old, Hiccup is mature. He is grown. He is a father. We see him caring. We see him loving. We see him being a leader and being responsible. Justin Long at no point in his career has shown us that he can handle a dramatic role, that he can handle the role of being a father, that he can handle these responsibilities. He's always the schlubby, awkward guy, or he's the guy that comes in for two minutes and does a weird cameo that honestly does not endear you to him like all of his cameos within the viewers universe he is not capable of leading a film he has never been successful in the lead role of a film whether it be tusk or even the alvin and the chipmunks franchise he cannot handle taking charge taking control of a franchise and you need an actor who has proven that they can and lewis hines led three full seasons of a tv show where he played against neil patrick harris in a fantastic phenomenal performance and all these amazing situations all this fantasy and was able to shine and stand out despite that um my reason for picking justin long is because if we're going to do a live action how to train your dragon why in the hell are we going to go back when we have three perfect movies to do so we need the 30 year old hiccup and uh if we're going to do lewis hines if Hiccup is 30, Lewis Hines looks fucking 15. Long playing 43 can actually look 30. And you're talking about how uh, Hiccup is warm and strong and cares for his family. But he's going to have flaws if we're going to do a new movie. He needs those flaws to be interesting. And if you look at, he's just not that into you. If you look at Live Free or Die Hard, if you look at Going the Distance, you can see a flawed person who has that witty, dry sense of humor, who has all the characteristics of, of Hiccup that can 
grow and be strong. He's strong going back and forth against Bruce Willis, but he's awkward in everything he's ever done. Look Again, look at accepted, and you have the balance between what Hiccup is with being dry and being witty, but also knowing he can be stronger and better than everybody else. When it comes to Lewis, Lewis is just another run-of-the-mill shy teen who's overrun by all the women in his series. Uh, Melina, his co-star in, in uh, Unfortunate Events, is the presence while Lewis is in the background. And if you look at him in the grate, he's barely in the grate. Basically, Heinz is a dude you do not know who looks like every other young adult you do not know in, the, in Hollywood. See, but I fundamentally disagree. You're punishing Lewis Heinz for being in a supporting role in a series saying that he's not that important or notable in the great. That's because that's the character that he's playing, and he does a great job as that character. He does not fall behind uh, Melina in the show. He does a great job balancing alongside her, the two of them taking the lead, both of them working together, stealing the spotlight from Neil Patrick Harris. And you need an actor who can also work alongside other young talent and has proven himself. You're also you're also taking my words out of context. I did not say Hiccup is 30. I said in the final scene in the last movie, he's older. But for a majority of the franchise, Hiccup is, in fact, as you said, Lewis Hines looks like, exactly 15 years old in the first film. So Lewis Hines looks the perfect age. Your argument of why go back on the three? Because How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, perfectly ended the franchise. It gave us the perfect campstone, the perfect ending. And we do not want to disrespect that ending, disrespect all the hard work, the three films that came before it, and move forwards. We saw with How to Train Your Dragon Homecoming, a special that adds on, elevates onto the end of the uh, third film. Fans sorely rejected it. They were not appeased by it. They did not like the way it interacts with, it affects, and it changes the ending of the film, disrespecting it and not liking how it changes the things. We do not need the story that takes place afterwards, and Justin Long cannot play that part nowadays. As well, again, he doesn't have the strength to lead a franchise. He doesn't have the charisma. He doesn't have the age, the... He doesn't have the ability to work with other actors. You keep saying this snark, this slubbiness. He really doesn't have this snark throughout it, this dry humor. He's very much like, a not necessarily a coward, but he's very much like hapless, doing whatever he can, but not being great. Like Lewis Hines exemplifies that. He is eccentric. He is young. He is scrawny, but he is intelligent. He is charismatic. And he is most importantly, genuine and trustworthy. And you care about him when you see him perform. One minute. Um, I researched this to look into the how to turn your dragon to check his age. His age is 30 at the end of these films. Um, you want to go back and redo movies we've seen that are kind of perfect instead of making amends for something they screwed up. I'd rather go make amends for that after story and make it better because this story needs that. Um, you want to pick Lewis Hines, who's only done two things, and those things uh, he has come off as only shy, as only the meticulous type of person, no recklessness, no wittiness, no humor. And yes, I'm sorry that he's only been cast as that, but if you're going to pick somebody new, what's going to make him any different than another faces young actor like Noah Jupe, Noah Schnapp, or Jaden Martell, all of whom I had to find from a list, just like I had to do with Lewis Hines, because I don't know who he is. You say Justin Long can't work with other actors. He's in rom-coms. Drew Barrymore, the, the entire cast of he's just not that into you, accepted Bruce Willis, and he murders every single one. Time. All right. Uh, Rue, you get to close first. One minute when you start talking.
if you want to pick another faceless young actor that people don't know the name of, you got to pick of them. I named three in addition to him already. Why pick him over the other three? You pick Justin Long because you want to make amends for apparently the tragedy they did after, after the Hidden World and make it better instead of going back and retrading a movie, a trilogy of movies that we love and adore. Justin Long has the wittiness, has the snark, but his entire career has played that awkward young guy who has to grow into his confidence. Not only does he grow into his confidence in every single movie he's grown in confidence in his entire career going from the scrawny geek in galaxy quest all the way up to the movies like going the distance and he's just not that into you where he has to work off off of other actors especially and he's just not that into you when he's kind of an asshole and he has flaws but you kind of care about him because you want to be with jennifer goodwin he has that dichotomy that is essential for hiccup and he has the wittiness and snark that lewis hines has none of I haven't seen it, and why not pick somebody else? We bring in Cam. Cam, you have one minute to close when you start talking. The problem with all the things you're saying for Justin Long is you are only quoting roles that he played 12 or more years ago. Modern day Justin Long has proven that he cannot do these things. He has not grown as an actor. He is constantly failing. He is constantly underperforming. And he is constantly giving performances that are widely disregarded like those in Tusk. Uh, Lewis Hines is on the up and coming. Sure, he has a few credits to his name. Give him a chance. Let him show you what he can do. He has shown us in series of unfortunate events. He can handle the pressure. He can handle the story. He can handle everything. He can compete with these other actors. He is not just a Another one of these garden variety young actors. He goes above and beyond because he is genuine. He is real. He is able to navigate these fantastical situations. He is able to compete against these star actors. He has this genuine air to him. He is the right age. We do not want, we do not need a new further story in the How to Train Your Dragon universe because at the end of the day, the franchise was ended perfectly. It ended exactly how it needed to with three perfect films and anything new, anything beyond that desecrates the legacy and ruins what we had beforehand. Lewis Hines is the now what we need to continue the franchise. Time. Okay. Cody, you need to go first. I'm pretty sure. I want to apologize to everybody I went to high school with because I'm pretty sure I like dumped water on people that had these arguments at lunch tables when I was uh, growing up. Um, this is really weird. There's a lot I want to say about this overall because I think there's a lot of like stuff that I would rebut overall, but they didn't say it, so I'll leave that alone. Um, but I'm with Cam. I think with Cam painted the picture enough where it doesn't matter. And I know there was like a, there was a gotcha moment almost when um, Cam said, well, Justin Long's too old to play the part. Use that as the main crutch. And then Rue was like 30 years past the point. We can just do it there. We don't need to go back. But I think Cam was able to swerve back and be able to take that down. And I think one of the huge takedowns was, Rue, everything you mentioned was 12 plus years ago at this point in time. You haven't named anything recent. Why can't this person be? <laughs> Apparently, he's not the actor he was. So that was a really good takedown at my point to take down that part. So I'm looking. Okay, Brian. Yeah, I, I didn't uh, hear a whole lot to convince me um, uh, that Kim's pick should, should play him. But on the other hand, from the very opening of uh, the back and forth argument, he said the elephant in the room is Justin Long's age, being 43 years old. And uh, it is both for Cam. Um, I think that was a big hurdle for uh, 
Rue to get over. And he tried to argue it, you know, talk about how, you know, he can tell the story beyond the three. But like Cody already said, uh, Cam uh, really kind of destroyed all those arguments because, you know, why would you want to go go beyond where it's already perfect? Why do you want to continue? Why would you move from animation to live action? You know, go back and, you know, be the character that we knew and that we loved and make the movies of those. And so, yeah, I think that um, that one point, I think Rue is battling uphill the whole time. Yeah. Uh, this is the first clean sweep of the night because I also went cam. Um, I, I agree I with wearing my how to turn your dragon t-shirt. <laughs> I, I agree with pretty much everything you guys said. Um, I think that Rue did a good job. I think that if we were pitching like who would have played this character, you know, 20 years ago, uh, Justin Long might not be a bad pick, but for the today is I, I think that cam argued it pretty well. So cam gets the point. Uh, it is now two to one in favor of Rue. So I also uh, just want to let the record state if you look up a picture of Lewis Hines, kid looks exactly like Jack Pinchuk. Oh, interesting. I was gonna say hiccup, but well, yeah, that so uh we're gonna move on. Cam uh also needs to hit this one in order to stay in the game. If Cam hits this, we will move on to the bonus round. Uh if Rue hits this, he will be the winner. So uh, we are going to move on to that question. It was drafted by Rue in the category of actors. And the question is, what is the funniest moment in the Rush Hour trilogy? So, uh, Rue, you get to kick this one off. One minute when you start. To- The beauty and comedy of Rush Hour 1 and 2 come from Lee and Carter's culture class that don't play huge for gut-busting moments, but constant one-liners and quick-hitting quotables like, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Do you want fives with that? Or I'm no punk bitch. While over time, their reliance on stereotypes don't age well, that nostalgia allows fans like me to quote every word from the movie and rely on the memory of how funny it was to keep that comedy going. Except in one scene in Rush Hour 1 where Carter is mad at finding out that Lee can speak English and Lee reads Carter entirely by saying, it seems as if you like to talk. I like to let people talk who like to talk to find out how full of shit they are. And Carter replies, what the hell did you just say? And that is the funniest moment in the entire trilogy because it's absolutely different than anything else in the trilogy. It doesn't make Lee a caricature. It subverts their roles for making Lee a motor mouth who flips the words of others and Carter has nothing to say. When he eventually does, his response is exactly what you're thinking in your head after Jackie Chan speaks, which makes you go, oh shit, that makes it way more funny. It's not as highly quotable as the other ones, so it doesn't get old and it's funny the first, fifth, or 20th time you see it. All right, we're going to move over to Cam. Cam, you have one minute when you start talking. While it can be easy to give a single comedic line reading, it is much harder to maintain comedy over a long period of time. And that's why I chose the scene you and me from Rush Hour 3. The setup of the scene is that they are in a dojo and Chris Tucker in, uh, ends up interacting with a man named you and a man named me. And it gets very confused uh, and it goes on for about a minute and the joke constantly ramps up. It constantly gets better and better. His confusion ever grows. He uses his facial expressions. He uses his comedic ability, his ability to ramp up, his ability to uh, elevate a humor and joke. And to the nth degree, building it and then cutting off right before it gets too soon with Jackie Chan coming in with the physical comedy, literally ripping him away from the scene. While Chris Tucker often goes over the top and too far with his facial expressions and his voice, as can be seen in many films like The Fifth Element and even other scenes in the Rush Hour mo- in the Rush Hour franchise, uh, in this scene, he's able to rein in. He isn't too annoying. He isn't too crazy. He isn't too anything. Instead, he maintains the comedy over time and builds it. The joke is able to elevate itself above the simple wordplay of the scene and become greater than the sum of its parts. The combination of fast-paced delivery, legitimately great comedic line readings, and Tucker's physical time. Okay. Um, 
five minute freeform when one of you starts talking. Notice that I didn't mention Rush Hour 3 in my opening because the entirety of that movie is just a desperate attempt at throwing some jokes at the wall and Tucker's delivery is over the top because he sounds desperate and rushed and his higher pitched voice is just like, hey, remember me? I, it, it was the guy you knew uh, who you loved in Rush Hour 2 and it's 2007 and I haven't had anything since. You and me relies on the exact same cultural stereotypical jokes of 1 and 2 and by the time we get to 3, it's old because it's the same exact beats as every other moment in Rush Hour 3 that lasts at the expense, uh, the, the the expense of the clash of black and Chinese cultures. It hits just the same as "Don't you ever touch a black man, radio boy," or Lee saying "What's up, my n-word," or uh, "I'm Michael Jackson and you Toto." You mean Tito? Toto is what we ate last night for dinner. They all rely on the same stereotypical jokes, and in three, it's more rushed, it's higher pitched, and it is a desperate claim to try to get back to what they were doing in Rush Hour One and Two. I'm sorry, but I disagree. You're projecting your hate for the movie onto the scene, and the scene, independent of the events of the film, is really well done. It Sure, does it use these stereotypes? Maybe, but so does the entire franchise. It is a comedy franchise about Asians and Black people directed by Brett Ratner. It's going to have that. Your line has it. It's entirely about the culture shock, the culture shock of this moment, of Jackie Chan finally speaking in English for the first time, us getting this twist reveal that apparently he can speak English. And frankly, that's also not the most sensitive way to do things. Uh, also, you picked a single line with a frankly uninteresting and bland line read from Jackie Chan. He is holding everything back. He isn't giving us much. He is just standing there looking at him. There's not much going on. Jackie Chan is usually able to be a great comedic and physical talent, and he's holding all of those skills back, and it's a detriment to the moment. Tucker isn't able to salvage it with his reaction. Even in the question also, you keep saying, like, we can, uh, you can quote all these movies, you can quote all these things. The question isn't most quotable, it's funniest. And I think mine, pound for pound, is funnier. You gave three funnier and more quotable lines in your opening than the one you picked. Exactly. It's not about most quotable. It's not about most memorable. It's about the funniest. And yours is no funnier than any other moment because it used that stereotype. You're saying mine banks on stereotypes. At what point does it actually use stereotypes? It does not. It actually elevates that and goes layers deep. It allows Lee to flip the roles to actually use wordplay. Carter says you're full of shit the line before and he flips that line to make Lee not the, the Asian who can't speak English. He can actually use his words to make Carter look like an idiot. It actually goes into and shows his biggest character flaws. So at surface level, it's still funny because you're laughing because Carter says the same thing you're saying in your head and you saying that uh, Jackie Chan doesn't deliver it. He delivers it with the perfect delivery. He has a little smirk on the side of his mouth and and uh, Chris Tucker responds not with the just oh what uh, anything. He's looking and he's like, wait a second, what the hell? What the hell did you just say? Their delivery is top notch. Yours is old. It's so old. It's actually a joke that already happened in Rush Hour Two, which was more naturally in the plot with the characters with Jackie Chan on Ricky Tan's boat, saying to a goon, "Oh, there was a uh, you murdered a detective earlier." Uh, and Carter overhears him, comes down and says, "Lee, who died? You." Detective you, not you, you, who? It's the exact same joke with the exact same stereotype so it can't be any funnier and it's delivered much worse. See, but the thing is, it absolutely can't. You even yourself just now saying the what? What the hell did you just say? That is a better line ring than Chris Tucker gives. He doesn't give that hesitation. He doesn't have that moment. He just says it outright and then starts walking away. The line that Jackie Chan says, while it may be well-written, funny is not the word I'd use to describe it. It gives us insight into Ch who Chan's character is and how he views Chris Tucker, but I don't think it's funny. It's not a strong comedic line. Uh, it just shows us how he'll relate to Tucker in the franchise moving forwards, and then it's immediately undercut by Tucker blowing it off with his what the hell did you just say? The line read is incredibly quiet. It's hard to hear. You have to go back. You have to repeat it. 
Again, it's not the most, like you keep saying, it's very quotable. That is not the question. Uh, the you and me One minute. is able to keep working. Sure, it's a format we've seen maybe in the franchise, and we've seen it in the past. One of the greatest jokes, comedic routines of all time that people ever say exists is the who's on first thing by Abbott and Costello. And that entire thing is wordplay. Who's on first? Who? Yeah, you. This is an elevation of that, putting it within the world of the franchise, putting it within these scenarios, putting it within a world where these characters can inhabit. It takes, it elevates above everything else in the film. It works super well. It's funny. It's well acted. It's well performed. It's well paced. It moves forwards. It uh, advances on itself. It builds on itself and it knows when to stop. It doesn't have the grace of being a single throwaway line. It has to consistently maintain its comedy, move forwards, move upwards, constantly keeping the balance and it does so it has the harder challenge to do it and it accomplishes it which i think makes it funnier and it sustains your comedy for longer uh you uh misheard me my openings clearly said it's not as quotable as everything else so it doesn't overplay in your head time okay uh we are gonna start with cam who gets to close first cam you have one minute when you start talking I never said that you said those lines were funnier. You said those three lines, and I said you quoted three better lines because you did. They are three better lines. But the best one is my scene from the third movie. It elevates above the rest of the film. It elevates above the rest of the franchise. It maintains comedy for a long amount of time. It has great line read. It has great physical comedy. It has a lot of these good moments. This entire franchise plays on these stereotypes. And uh, even what you say in your scene, it doesn't subvert these stereotypes. It plays on the ones that have been building all over. And it just says, hey, this is a stereotype. Congratulations. We did it. Uh, it does not give us a forward motion. It does not give us these moments of great comedy, these moments of great laughter. It's a smug, it's a smarmy, it's a smirky maybe line, but it's not funny. It's it's insightful. It shows us who the character is, but it doesn't make us laugh out loud. It doesn't make us enjoy everything that's happening around us. The you and me sequence is constant comedy. It is nonstop humor and it works and it builds and it does and it knows exactly when it needs to stop before it get, gets too old, like my art time. Okay. Oh, Jesus. Uh, let's go over to Rue. Rue, one minute when you start talking. You said the trilogy is nothing but quotable stereotypes and your scene elevates it, but how can it be an elevation if it's an exact copy from a joke that already happened in Rush Hour 2? Mine is because it's not as quotable, it doesn't get old in your head when you go back and revisit it. And every time you see it, you're like, oh yeah, I remember this. And it was hilarious because what it actually does instead of laughing at the class of cultures, it attacks the class of cultures. Because Lee shows Carter that he's assuming he's not able to speak, um, which is not the same as not speaking. It points out big character flaws in this uh, in Tucker that he has to overcome it actually utilizes both characters uh it brings jackie into the comedy it leans in on their relationship again it highlights the fact that both have great comedic timing chris tucker hesitates for a second to a half a second to a second before saying what you already thinking in your head making it the funniest moment because it's not quotable because it doesn't rely on stereotypes because it actually utilizes both people because it is a, a subversion of what you're thinking of the characters is the funniest moment because it's like nothing else that you, you've seen. Yours is a copycat. Yours is a copycat. Strike it from the record. Oh, my God. Is it clear I haven't seen any of these movies? No. Shut up. <sighs> Say that after the judging, no, even, though we know, after the judging. even though we know it's true. Yeah. Stricken from the record. 
Um, Actually, can I dock him points because he hasn't played anyone? No. Uh, I don't want to go first. Um, I can go first. I already got mine. Oh, are you both ready and I'm just sitting oh, here like yeah. a dumbass? I write before I came. I'm not so confident can see to my if that gives you any comfort. Oh, yeah, not really either. But <laughs> I was tasked to, um, to judge this, so I just wrote a name down. All right. <sighs> have my dog sitting here. Okay. I'll go first. Okay, buddy. I'm proud of you. Um... I went with Cam. Um, I thought that I thought that he. I thought this was really close, and it's hard because I have to turn off in my brain that right before the match started, Cam goes, "I haven't seen Rush Hour," but I thought that he very art like very well explained like this is a franchise that's all about this, this, and this, and this is a scene that, despite it being done or a joke despite it being done in the previous movie is done better here and it's still funny and that ruse joke might be humorous but isn't laugh out loud comedy which is what you're looking for in the funniest scene it was really close i when i peek behind the curtain when i do this i actually write names down and erase and change as we go on to as, and i had rue written down for a while and it went back and forth and it was just this was a tough one for me. I'm going to be honest, but I, I went with Cam. I'm probably insane. Uh, Cody, you're next. So this is a really weird con, uh, fight um, because it happened. It's happened to me before when I know something for sure is the correct answer, and like I know my stance and like so well, I fight it a certain way. But I end up losing ground because I'm fighting a different stance than what probably the judges or the question needed to be said. That's why I went with Cam on this because overall, wow. Rue took a different fight than he needed wow. to on this one. Did he pick in his mind the funniest part for him? Absolutely. But he had to use so much descriptive to describe that to the judge without hearing Chris Tucker or Jackie Chan saying those lines when Cam was able to just quick hit, describe one funny scene and then also give scene, give quotes beforehand. And then Cam was able to use that as ammo, even if it's not true, to say those are funnier than the ones you just said. And the whole thing was funny at the end of the day, even though I think Rush Hour. And then you also said about stereotypes, and then he was able to just throw it back. But kind of this movie was just built on that, and it's kind of where it was. So it's hard to argue that at that point. So I think I think he just knew too much about this, and he gave Cam so much ammo, and it just backfired. All right. Uh, wow. Uh, Brian, uh, you're going, your vote doesn't count. Where would you have gone and why? I was most surprised to find out that there are scenes in this movies that people are supposed to think are funny. Cause <laughs> no. um, I, I think that both of them were really overanalyzing what were clearly just dumb comedy, you know, lines that were thrown in there. I mean, like you, like I think Cam said, it's a Brett Ratner movie. I think they're both trying to get a little too deep into, you know, the levels of comedy. Um, I really wasn't trying to get deep into the Brett Ratner stuff. I wanted to move on very I quickly. I actually did vote for Cameron. It, it was super close for me, but I think that uh, Cam did something really smart. Um, when Rue was like attacking Rush Hour 3, uh, he basically said, you're bashing the entire movie and projecting it onto my one scene. And that doesn't mean the whole that, that scene is bad just because you don't like the whole movie. 
um, than Rue when he was specifically attacking with, uh, you know, saying it was done in rush hour two. Uh, Cameron actually almost kind of embraced that and said, yeah, and it was done well before that in Abbott Costello. That doesn't mean it can't still be a funny Joker moment in a movie, you know, later on. So while it was extremely close, I leaned towards Cameron. I pulled that Abbott Costello thing. Uh, I am, I am, I'm shocked. We um, can tell. Yeah. So, um, a really interesting match. Two points for Rue on the top, two for Cam on the bottom, and they both won one of the other's points. This is this is wild. This is Rue lost Chris Tucker and he lost Rager, right? And both of them are hating my I'm lives. glad I chose to wear my dragon shirt and not my Edgar Wright shirt. <laughs> so I would have lost anything but Chris Tucker. Damn it. I lost <laughs> uh so we're gonna move on to the bonus round. Here's how this is gonna work. Uh there are uh we randomized uh, whether to pull this question from fandom or from Warzone. Um, we have come up with a question to give you guys. Um, you will have, uh, I will say the question, and then I will repeat the question a second time. Once I have repeated the question, you can then answer. Once you have an answer, say it. Don't wait around. Just say your answer. Whoever says their answer first will be going first. Um each player will get 45 seconds and then 30 seconds. You can use your time however you want. You want to bash the other person's choice the whole time and don't say anything about yours, you can do that. You can do what you want. I don't care. It's your time on the floor. Um, so does everybody understand how this is going to work? What do yeah. I do? You listen. Okay. Uh, so we randomized. This is coming from the world of fandom. And the question is, which fandom character is the most frustrating? Again, which fandom character is the most frustrating? Anakin Skywalker. Okay. Um... Long, yeah, fuck it. Over. Turbo. Okay. <laughs> All right. Turbo so, uh, <laughs> yes, so we're going to get uh, Anakin Skywalker versus Turbo. Um, that's, a, that's a fun That's a fun match. So, um, I'm going to stay on screen to give you guys your countdowns when they come. Reminder, you have 45, uh, then the other player 45, then 30, then 30. Are you ready? Sure. All right, Rue, 45 seconds on the clock when you start talking. If you're a little kid, we can take the whining, babying, and selfishness, but after 10 years of training, you don't listen to your master. You don't listen to the love of your life. You're easily influenced by somebody you don't know very well to cause more death because you want to stop death, all the while complaining about how coarse sand is and saying, I hate you to the man who basically raised you. Get your baby back, bitch, frustrating ass out of here. You are the chosen one. You were supposed to take all of that for the man who raised you and balanced the force. And because you couldn't take heartache, you couldn't take the things that everybody else in life takes, people in this galaxy who have gone through probably worse or the same you, and you wanted to be a little punk ass about it and become the worst person in the world, get the hell out of Time. here. Man. 
All right, Cam, 45 seconds. When you're ready. I think the biggest thing that makes Turbo one of the most frustrating characters in all of fandom is that he is a character who defies his circumstances, is given a brilliant, amazing powers, and does not use them, does not use them for good, and, and becomes arrogant. He's arrogant before he even gets his powers, then after he does, he becomes even worse, more frustrating. He surrounds himself with cronies who feed his ego instead of with the people who actually care about him, his family, the people he loves. He idolizes a race car driver who is flat-out vindictive, flat-out evil, flat-out mean. In the final race, when he loses his powers, despite him being the only person who can possibly win the race because everyone else has crashed, he gives up. He chooses not to win, despite the fact that it's his entire destiny, his entire motivation, and he gives up on it. Anakin is a is a child who is saddled with a chosen one destiny that is not his to have, and he is given a god complex beyond imagine. And if you struggle with that too, absolutely, you make some bad choices. Rue, thirty seconds when you start talking. There's nothing frustrating about using your powers to fulfill a dream. And people who get those very easily, easily fall into the traps of egotisticalness and selfishness. And all those flaws and selfishness you brought up, he, he goes against in the end. He learns his lesson. While uh, Anakin Skywalker has 10 years with people who are surrounding him and loving him. And he, he, he does not learn from those lessons. He becomes worse at it. And then he, when he does finally do it, he does it as Darth Vader. After doing the dumbest things in the world as Anakin and having to live through being Darth Vader for years. Cam, 30 seconds when you start talking. I do not think it is frustrating for Anakin as a character to be influenced by the greatest evils in the universe. That is what they are there to do, and that is what happens. While it may be plot-wise difficult for him to deal with, it is not frustrating for him as a character. His intentions are good, even if his actions are bad. He's constantly striving to do things that are good for him, good for the people that he loves, even if it means doing things that may be bad for others. Turbo has good intentions and then fails to use them. He does not use the people around him. He does not use his powers for good. He gives up on his dreams despite being handed everything on a silver platter and surrounding himself with people who do not care for him, do not love him, and idolizing bad people time fuck it's <laughs> a fight and a half Oof. uh i am getting a report that lightsaber went through turbo so <sighs> this is fun this is, I I love this show so much, and I hate this show so much. It's I was between Turbo and Tris from Divergent. Oh, I thought about Christina, but I already made that fight. If I would have made the did. pick. I would have also picked the guy that brought back Jason. No, <laughs> 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 would have been. All right. Um, who decided the last one? Brian did, right? Or he, yeah. So Brian goes first on this one. I'm proud of you, Brian. <laughs> yeah, this is another tough one because it's like uh, the the question was who's the most frustrating, and and both of them, I think, when they first started out in the first half of their arguments, 
like Rue was going off about why the guy's a punk ass bitch, but I didn't get frustrated from that part. And uh, and Cameron's argument about you know uh, the family, the people who love him versus the people he surrounds himself with. I didn't just my definition of frustrating that didn't quite have the, go in the same direction in my mind as they went. Um, but they both in the second half of the argument, I think they they picked up and kind of found the groove. Um, again, this one was kind of a toss up, um, but I ended up going with Rue. Okay, I get to go next. You do. Um. <laughs> oh man, I uh, right. This is another. This is another one of those scenarios where there is a right answer on paper uh, out of the two options that were given, and the person who picked the weird off kilter one did really well and shocked me. Um, I thought that Rue's opening actually worked for me um, quite a bit. And I thought Cam's opening worked a lot. And then they both kind of like went back and forth on each other's characters. I think the thing that sealed the deal for me was the point that because we are frustrated by the, uh, the, 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 how do I say this? The, the, the point that was made was like Anakin Skywalker is being manipulated by the greatest evil in history. And that is why he's the way he is. Ultimately, the, the character itself, not as frustrating, um, especially when you have like the, the, the God complex given upon you your whole life. I went with Cam. Um, I, I, I fucking kill me. Uh, so Whatever happens, great gamer. Uh, so Cody... Yeah gets to do his favorite thing and decide decide this one. Cody, who is going on to play Kirk in the title match? Yeah, it's funny because now I'm a competitor, so some people think I'm rigging this shit. Anyways, <laughs> what I will say is Rue did use one of my favorite insults in the history of the universe. Anybody that knows me knows I call a lot of people a punk-ass bitch. Yeah. On a regular. So I appreciate that, Rue. What I will say is, frustrating, there's a lot of choices to pick. Did I think the snail from Turbo was going to be the one? No. Did I think Anakin? Yeah, probably. Overall, I think they painted the picture well. I think there was a lot of offense for one, and a lot of offense-defense for the other. And that's where I went with the offense-defense method. I went with Brew, seeing the title game. Wow. So your winner, Rue Moses, moving on to the title match. Wow. Uh, let's let's start real quick by uh, talking to Cam. Cam, hell of a match. Uh, you looked like you were shocked to even get to the final bonus question. And uh, you did really well. But, um, you know, that's how it happens. You didn't make it in. But you played incredibly well all evening, even on the ones you lost. You did well. So how are you feeling? Uh, yeah, I I feel good. Uh, mostly, I feel atrocious about myself that I lost on the Edgar Wright question. Uh, I have to burn all of my 4K Blu-rays and my own corpse. Um, I have affronted uh my king, uh, and I must pay penance for that. Oh my uh, god! But in all seriousness, uh, no, this was fun uh yeah 
I still am bewildered that I somehow got the rush hour point. That makes no sense to me. It's the thing I had the least notes on. Uh, and just I managed to play by the seat of my pants. Um, yeah, I like when fandom came up in the last thing, whenever fandom comes up, I always go, ah, oh, shit. Because I think when it comes to the debate part, I'm more of a Warzone or How to Train Your Dragon guy. Um, <laughs> and when that question came up, like, there were a lot of obvious choices. And like you said, I think the obvious choice people let stand for themselves. And by picking a weird out-of-the-box pick, it's hard to defend and the arguments can really shine. Um, yeah, like... I got at least one vote on every question, which feels really good. The two that I won were both somehow sweeps. Um, yeah, I'm. Congratulations to Rue. I cannot wait to see him fight against Kirk. Um, I am excited close. to see who I play next. Yeah, no, we'll definitely be having you back uh, very soon, Cam, because that was okay. that was a great performance. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet you are. I, I understand. Uh, Cam, great job tonight. Let's move over uh, to the winner of the contender match, Rue Moses. Rue, excellent job. Lots of passion tonight coming out. And uh, you're moving on to the title match. You're going to play Kirk. And it's going to be disgusting. And I'm so excited. Uh, how do you feel about your performance tonight? And are you excited to play Kirk? Uh, I'm very excited to, to, to play Kirk. I got to get him back for the last match. Um, when I went up 2-0, I immediately said, I was down 2-0 last match. So let's not say this is a guarantee. Um, I will say in my head, I won the Rush Hour point. However, that's because I know the Rush Hour movies to AT. Um, they are absolutely hilarious to me. Um, and I know every point and counterpoint that I made. But that's because I know it. Um, I, I didn't necessarily show it to y'all, but because I know, I know I argued the hell out of it, but every single, every single one, um, I could easily, I could a hundred percent say could have gone either way. All five of the rounds uh, I could have seen going either way. Um, very honestly, when Cody said so much, so when Cody said offense and defense, I was thinking about all the offense and defense I heard from Cam and I thought I lost. Uh, so I was like, damn, okay, well, um, this was a fun match. This was a great match. Uh, like I said, Cam knows what he's doing. Um, and, and, and going to Kirk, the, the man KO'd me last time. Uh, but I'm holding on to the fact that, uh, apparently I was, have done the best arguing, um, any Romero thing against him. So I'm going to take that, hold on to it. Um, and I'm going to go, uh, I, I'm going to try to passion and detail my way to a, to a championship here. Um, it's going to be fun, uh, but it's going to be a tough one. Uh, so I, I can't wait. Yeah, absolutely. Rue, uh, very happy for you. It's going to be a great match. Looking forward to it. So we'll see you very soon in that title match. Let's get closing thoughts from Brian. Yeah, I mean, this this match was really very close. I thought Cam said it best when he pointed out that, you know, he lost the match, but he got a point in every single round, whereas mm -hmm. his two wins were both sweeps against, against Rue. So, I mean, obviously he was doing a great job there. Um, as far as, uh, Rue, it'll be interesting to see how he does against Kirk, you know, now that he's gone up against him once, going for rematch. Um, my piece of advice to him is, you know, are you something that you want to read a book on? Cause Kirk will probably send you one. That's very accurate. Uh, Cody, final thoughts from you. Um, so I didn't ask Rue when he was on the desk, but I'm interested to see if this is the cam that he really wanted because that was really close at the end of the day. I still think, you know, cam does something different in those first two questions. 
and he walks away the winner right now. Like that's how crazy, that's how close we were. We wouldn't even have to go. Um, overall, I think Rue, um, I think this will be the most prepped fight that we have mm-hmm. between the two of them. I think they will be very smart with what they pick. I do not think there will be any gamesmanship of like, oh, I won't give you this. I will. I think they are going to go for the throat. Uh, and the main thing about the finals is Kirk gets three questions. So, mm-hmm. and where he plays those three, that's going to make the big difference in this match. So, they're they're going to be prepared. They're going to be well. I think Cam Cam is going to probably contend for a title because, I mean, we all knew it, but he bullshitted the hell out of Rush Hour. But at the end of the day, he he knew what he had to know going into it. Um, yeah. So. Uh, I bet he'll be back for the title, but I'm excited for Rue um, and Kirk. I'm not excited to wait for the answers to roll in for Kirk and Mark. So, <laughs> yeah, because it will take forever. That one's gonna be gross. Uh, so uh, we will uh, see that match in two weeks. Count them. Two weeks. We're gonna see the title match between Kirk and Rue. It's gonna be very exciting. Um, and then after that, we got some upcoming matches. We got some Andrew Barr versus Richard Schwartz going on. And we got RJ making a return against uh, another returning player, Caleb Boatman. Uh, so that'll be a couple of matches coming up post uh, this title match. So lots of cool stuff coming. Thank you guys so much for watching. We'll see you with the title match in a couple weeks. Until then, thank you. We'll see you next time. That's my bad, I was sending a tweet.